You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. Timey crimey, and if I sound extra perky this week, it's because we're not on Google Meet. <laughs> if I don't sound extra perky, it's because we're not on Google Meet. Dear God, we're not on Google Meet. <laughs> I had to actually drive here. I'm wearing pants. <laughs> I had to drag all of my stuff out to the dining room and set it up. <laughs> you didn't have to. But we had to put on pants. <laughs> we could have done this all on Google Meet. <laughs> It's starting to sound like an ad for Google Meet. It really is. Or Google Hangouts. <laughs> I am Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. And we are here with your weekly historical true crime where we delve into the pages of yesteryear and see what bad stuff people were up to back then. They were sick fucks. They were up to some really bad stuff, yeah. And uh, it doesn't seem to matter the time or the place, as we'll see, you know... Canadians, we have such a, a, a stereotypically nice view of them, but uh, turns out some of them, there's a couple here and there who are awful. You know, you get that one person who doesn't like apologies, and I bet Canada <laughs> would be really just enough to drive you to be a serial killer. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what you should also be doing in addition to listening to us is you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrime. You can find it in the show notes. There is a link there. You can also find it on our social media, and you can come and be a patron and hear even more of us in person together with Scott and Amber barely hiding their resentment that they had to put on pants and drive. <laughs> I like to podcast with my dick hanging out. Me I think too. That, I think that's the secret to good podcasting. And why am I more attracted to Amber now that I know that she has a penis? That's weird. I've been doing it wrong all along. So for $5 a month, you get... Five bonus episodes. Bonus. <laughs> oh dear. That is four weekly bonus episodes in which in which one of us tells the other two a story they haven't heard before, or well, all and prepositions. Or, <laughs> prepositions. If and but. Actually, no, those aren't prepositions. They're um, conjunctions. But God damn it! Uh, <laughs> I ruined it. <laughs> I do that. So, but yeah, regardless of prepositions or conjunctions, and you also get our extra extra, which is our big monthly bonus episode where we do something on a theme. May's theme actually ended up kind of being double-barreled. It was both murders that happened in our birth year as well as sort of like horror entertainment. So that ended up being really super fun and interesting. So that all aside... This week, we are going to be talking about the ideal maternity home and what became known as the Butterbox Babies. Less than ideal. Less than ideal. Very much not ideal. Unless you're talking about a baby murder in the factory, then it was pretty damn good. I mean, they, they were good at what they did. It's just that what they did sucked. So, the ideal maternity home actually started out as the Life and Health Sanitarium in East Chester, Nova Scotia, that is in Canada, if you don't know. 1928 to 1947 was about how long it lasted, so about two decades. That's how long they were in very bad business. East Chester 
is on the east coast of Nova Scotia in the uh, Mahone or Mahoney Bay. It, it's about 40 miles southwest of Halifax. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that bay is a, is a good yachting spot if you're the fancy type, which none of us are. No. <laughs> so. And so this home was operated by William Young and Lila Gladys Young and would actually become the largest maternity home in eastern Canada by the mid-40s. If you're trying to think, picture in your head what this couple looked like, I think the best way to put it is Zach Baggins and Drag and fully mustache Hitler. <laughs> that's kinda, that's you're good. so good at this. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. I'm not going to, because you're not wrong. But that's still, it's, it, you're, you're very good at that. Thank it's, you. It's just a bizarre talent is all. But it's, it's a, you're good at it. It's a talent. Everybody now knows exactly what these people look like. They do, yes, you're right. And they know who those people are. I, I, I saw Zach Bagans the other day. He's about 20% of the way to drag. He does not look like he did about 15 years ago. Hmm. He looked like he was dressed up like an old grandmother. Fuck. Well, moo-moo and all. I'm thinking maybe a grandmother's ghost possessed him and is just trying to keep it all on the down low. <laughs> or maybe he spent all of quarantine watching the Golden Girls and just channeling that energy. You know what? Most of them are dead. Hey, look. It's the train tracks. We're going to get back on them. Nope. At its height, the ideal maternity home had between 80 and 125 babies in the nursery. And between 1928 and 1946, an estimated 800 to 1,500 children were born there. So that is a lot of children. Now, let's talk about the two principal actors here. Lila, she was born in 1899. Lila Gladys Kulin. I'm sorry about the moth. There's just this one weird moth. Uh, that's away. a great radio show. There's no reason for you to apologize for the moth. <laughs> it is a great radio show. So I was listening to that on the way up here. That's funny, actually. So she was born... Amber's part cat. She's now swatting at the moth. I'm afraid if she catches it, she's going to eat it in front of us. She was born Lila Gladys Coolin, and so not far from Chester at all, in Fox Point, into a very large... Seventh-day Adventist family. So uh, their total was eight sons and three daughters, including Gladys. So 11 kids. Amber killed the moth. That's an update on that. Uh, she, was, <laughs> she was number six, but she was the first girl after five boys. So. No, she wasn't. She was the first boy that they dressed up like a girl. Sometimes I think <laughs> that you pick cases based on what the people look like so that you can say things. Like that. Uh, <laughs> she got me. <laughs> her poor mother, Bessie, yes, Bessie, Bessie, was popping out kids from age 20 to age 43. Ew. 23 years of childbirth and pregnancy and childbirth and pregnancy and that. There's a lot of horrifying stuff in this episode. That is among the things that are horrifying to me. <laughs> As a person who has not had children and is terrified at the very idea of uh, that particular activity. So, yeah. Uh, so, Bessie, though, was just following the example she'd grown up with because she was one of 12. Seven boys, five girls, so similar numbers either, even. And her mother was birthing from age 19 to age 40. Good. 
God. Yeah, I know. It's it's. Uh, I'm I'm kind of glad that I did not live back then. I used to think I was born in the wrong era, but then we did this, and I was like, no, um, modern medicine, birth control, women's lib, all these things. Good, good. Getting to choose whether or not you have children. Yeah, very important. Yes. Not having your downstairs look like the back seat of an Arby's delivery car. <laughs> so, and uh, Lee Malore notes in. <laughs> beef sandwiches. Ah, what is with ah, the bugs? It's, it's just a stink bug. It's okay. It's okay. It's and it's. This is why we do it over Google Meet. You can't see all the bugs that are apparently in my house. I need to kill it. Can I have a paper? Here. This is this is my notes from the tiny. Go ahead. Ah. This is good radio. <laughs> this is not good radio. I disagree. <laughs> I'm going to let Amber get up and toss that. <laughs> it attacked me. In the book Cold North Killers, Lee Malore says, quote, early accounts of her life reveal a woman whose compassion and generosity were overshadowed by her obstinance. And they would later be completely obliterated by her murderousness. I think, I think it's amazing you glazed over William's middle name. What was his name again? Peach. Peach. Oh, Peach. Somehow, I'm, well, no, I'm not to. I'm not to Pete William yet. I'm still. I thought on, we mentioned William. Well, I did, but I'm, I'm doing them one by one. Now you know how it feels. She did this to me in the tiny. <laughs> <laughs> so Lila was doing pretty well as a teacher, but she got knocked up at 26, and that meant she had to marry the dude. The dude was, and you'll never guess his middle name, <laughs> William Peach Young. Must be like a family thing, I'm imagining. I didn't really look into it too much, but I'm just imagining that has to be like passed down through the family, like a mother's maiden name or... He's probably like the 15th kid and they're like, I like peaches. Peach. We, we named you after the first thing you ate. <laughs> so Billy, here, he, he grabbed a peach, so his middle name was Peach. <sighs> Shut up, Mercury! <laughs> <laughs> so, that was William Peach Young... He was born in Oregon in 1898, so only a year off from Lila, to a smaller family, which uh, likely just had three kids. It was kind of hard to tell from the, the sources. And one thing they did have in common, though, was they were both from Seventh-day Adventist families. He, he and his father actually traveled all over doing the whole missionary thing. So while Lila was just sitting there in Fox Point, William was traveling all about, which sounds exactly like you know, the positions of man and woman in those days. So he actually did get some schooling because he thought that he would end up working as a medical missionary. He went to an actual missionary school in huh. Oshawa, Ontario. Except Jesus is your savior. I'm not giving you the morphine. And then the College of Medical Evangelists, which was a thing from which he graduated. Now about the school, it was authorized to, quote, establish and maintain, carry on, and conduct literary, scientific, medical, dental, pharmaceutical, and medical missionary colleges or seminaries of learning. I don't know why medical is in there twice. I could give you this aspirin, but we're just going to pray real hard for you. Yeah, basically. Could also grant degrees in liberal arts and sciences and dentistry and medicine. But after all this, he was still an unordained minister, so didn't really have uh, an actual official qualification. Is there anybody sitting at this table that isn't an ordained minister? I'm not ordained. I mean, I well, just we'll never we'll fix that during the break. Sure, yeah. It works. <laughs> We're ordained. Yeah. <laughs> I married Amber. Amber married me. But we have different spouses. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that sounds really weird. Yeah. Should clarify. <laughs> 
So, speaking of marriage, Lila and William married in Toronto on July 7th, 1925. I was able to find their marriage certificate, which was fun because it had lines for, you know, a space to write names, of course, occupations, ages, and then condition in life, in which you specified whether, if you were the groom, you were a bachelor or a widower, and if you were the bride, whether you were a widow or... Dead. A, a spinster. Same oh, thing. They're very yeah, similar. Yeah, They're very right. similar. <laughs> which, if you're... If you're getting... What does it matter? Why do they ask that? It's so stupid. If you're getting married, you're not a spinster anymore. And if you're get, if you're a guy, you're not a bachelor anymore. We so need to make fun. sure that the man knows whether to get panties or a coffin for her downstairs business. Maybe just have a widow or widower checkbox, and that's it. We yeah. don't need to bring spinster into it at all. But you know what? It, there, there's never a bad time to take pot shots at women. <laughs> so I'm just I'm upset that they didn't have a box for crone. <laughs> well, I mean, but like, what, what if it's like a 15-year-old getting married? Are they still a spinster? At what point do you, do yeah, you go from like a bachelorette to spinster? Yeah, because you can't be, if you're not widowed and you're 15, you have the option of widow or spinster. So I guess if you're 15 and you're getting married, you check spinster. <laughs> you're like, well, there's no other option, so here we go, I guess. Have a child. <laughs> yeah. Arranged marriage. Yeah. So Epstein's marriages. Lila had her first baby. It was a rough pregnancy. She had chronic back pain. I can feel for her on that. And William was really trying to help her, so he got into alternative medicine. And I would like to thank Jackson for not doing that. Right. I guess CBD could kind of count as like I use a CBD balm. Could kind of count as alternative. Medicine. I don't think we can. I don't think we're talking that alternative no, he medicine. No, just prayed over her a lot. Like, yeah, there was some prayer. Prayer crystals, laying mm. on hands, yeah. asking God really nicely. Well, the laying on of hands happened when they made the child. So uh, <laughs> that's that, a laying on of a different organ. That phrase always really skewed me out, though. That I've does. always hated that phrase. That's true. So they actually moved to Chicago. Interestingly, uh, the first child is born. And they're trying to advance their future as a family, both of them. He goes and he gets his chiropractic license in 1927. Might as well go from fake priest to fake doctor. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and she goes to school for a new interest and attends the National School of Obstetrics and Midwifery, which uh, she would later say, oh, I'm an obstetrician, I'm an obstetrician. But she was only certified to be a midwife. Not that there's... There's no, that's a great, great career path. That's a, it takes a lot of energy and compassion and, and things I certainly don't have, but there's a difference in the schooling. There's a difference in the training and it's misrepresentation to say you're one when you're not. So that's what I have to say about that. They go back to Nova Scotia and they're like, you know what? We're a young couple on the move. You've got a fake doctor's license and I'm pretending to be a doctor as well. So why don't we open up a business? That sounds, sounds like a plan. So they open up the Life and Health Sanitarium in East Chester that starts in a four-bedroom home in 1928. I love, I love their little motto, too. Ooh, where the, the sick get well. Wow, you really thought about that hard, huh? Where the sick get well. Where the sick just keep getting sicker and sicker. We don't understand why. Arsenic. <laughs> <laughs> so the name would eventually get switched to Ideal Maternity Home. As far as uh, job duties, 
Lila worked as a midwife and told everybody she was an obstetrician, and also as the managing director, and John was the superintendent. So they just really, I think, were like, I really would like a title that means I get to boss people around, even if we don't have any people to boss around. Just, just, I just want to have a fancy title, so they, they did that. I am a chief director of Cybertronian Affairs. <laughs> Christy is liaison to Emperor Palpatine. And Amber's normal? <laughs> Nobody's ever said that before. I know, I know. That's why I had that little inflection at the end, <laughs> so that you could hear the question mark. I would also like to note that I am the chancellor of uh, cross-stitchery. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so. The emperor has to have his cross-stitching done someplace. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it? Yes, this is good, good. So as far as clients slash patients, whatever you want to call them, slash victims... Uh, it would be married and expecting couples who were looking for care while they were birthing, and also less married women looking for a place to both give birth, and then likely, because of their status as not being married, place the child out in the world with an adoptive family without anyone finding out. That was a big, important key there. Here is their price list. Uh, married women seeking refuge uh, paid an average of $75 each for delivery and two weeks of convalescence. Uh, unwed mothers, frightened of scandal, they, they got a different price. An average of $100 or $200 in advance for room and board, delivery of the infant, and arranging subsequent adoptions, plus another $12 for diapers and supplies. $2 weekly maintenance fee for warehousing infants between delivery and adoption. And if the baby dies, an extra $20 for a funeral, which is a pretty good deal. Well, considering the corners they cut, but we'll get into that. But the, the brochure is actually promised to shield the expectant mothers from gossip. That was the big thing, because like your, your entire reputation would be ruined if you were a single parent. So they would take you in and then shield you from that. And then when you were slender enough and baby free, you could go back and not have that scandal. Which and it's kind of weird. Today it's almost the reverse. It's almost, it's, it's on the verge of becoming a badge of honor to be pregnant. We have the show, 16 and Pregnant. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a chance that you get on a reality show. I'm not watching the prequel to that, 15 and Horny. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Laws change. And amazingly, those laws can have an effect on the experience and the shame of being a single mother. So Nova Scotia actually had in place at this time the Illegitimate Children's Act, which would not be repealed until 1951. Now, if you were a woman who got impregnated by a man and you wanted some support to help you out with this because you're a woman and it's damn hard to get a job as a woman... Especially when you're pregnant, there's that aspect. You could have the avenue of seeking support through the courts. However, this was a horrific experience. I got uh, this from Karen Balcom's uh, article in the Journal of the History of the Atlantic Region. So there's a lot of information from there. It was really interesting. But it was uh, a mother could, could use this to get money to help with medical expenses and child support but you had to do it in open court. So, in this case, you would undergo, according to Balcom, quote, a humiliating inquiry into the circumstances of her pregnancy where the putative father could defend himself by, def by questioning the mother's character and sexual history. That sounds like 
not a good way to spend an afternoon. No. <laughs> that sounds horrifying. And so in 1938, they added a new amendment that kind of hints at one strategy we probably all figured out by now. Slut shaming. Well, yeah, but, but via witness. The, the, probably a lot of men were using uh, the, the putative fathers. They, if they brought in a witness to say, hey, I had sex with her too, and then they were found to be lying, then both the witness and the putative father would be held liable. Not very many women were seeking this because it really, really was not worth it at all. <laughs> the maximum amount of support you could get. All right, so I'm gonna, we're going to play the guessing game. And uh, listeners, you can join in at home. <laughs> so what do you think in old-timey Canadian dollars was the uh, max support you could get per week? Two loonies and a toonie. I was actually going to say $2. Was two loonies and a toonie too? I think it's, that's like fifty bucks. I think it's four dollars. <laughs> it might be. I thought a a, a loonie was a one dollar and a toonie was a two dollar. See, coin. I was thinking uh, a loonie was a ten and a toonie was a twenty. I think it's their coins, but I could be wrong. But but still, so you're saying fifty bucks? I'm gonna say I'm gonna say forty to fifty dollars. And you're saying two dollars? Yeah. Um, well, closest without going over is Amber. Five dollars a week. Wow. Well, no, okay, so think about it this time. So so women at this time made between $4 and $8 a week. So I, I was trying to put it at probably less than what somebody working as, like, a maid would have been making. Well, what's that adjusted in today's money? In today's money, in Canada, I did not do the adjustment to American because it's it's not really, there's not a big enough difference between yeah, Canada is sprightly. We're in Pennsylvania, little Canada. Yeah, exactly. So in 1929, the equivalent of that I, was $73. Mm. So raising a baby on uh, $73 a week. Yeah. Uh, so... I have to cook the baby to just make ends meet. <laughs> and there... There wasn't even any real mechanism in place if the guy just didn't pay. So this was very, very much not worth it. Not very many women did that. So there was, there was one other option. You could go to the district for aid because each individual district, they had a whole bunch of really tiny ones, was responsible for taking care of you know, the indigent and unwed mothers and such. But in that case, you'd still end up being forced to court, according to Balcom. She could be forced by the overseers of the poor or by any ratepayer in the poor district, so any taxpayer, just random Joe Schmo, if he happened to pay his taxes that year, can say, that slut must go to court. By the way, overseers of the poor, great Piers Anthony book. <laughs> so could be forced by these people to name the father of her child before a judge and that thus commence legal proceedings under part one of the act. Part one being the guy can go into court and, and say, she's just a tramp. She's a, she's a shameless strumpet. Just ignore her. Uh, in this proceeding, that is one initiated on behalf of the local poor district, the mother still had to face the open court inquiry, but any funds recovered would go to pay the expenses incurred by the overseers of the poor. So she wouldn't even get the money. It would just go to the general fund for the poor. I feel like Christy threw a lot of legalese on us. I'm just <laughs> not going to knock up bitches. <laughs> Uh, in the past, I guess. So they did finally get a new act passed in 1951 that remedied some of this, but it was really, the problem was, it's hard to get the people behind actually doing something good for unwed mothers. They're like, no, they're all sluts. Why would we do something good for them? I mean, right? 
It's it's honestly it's kind of still that way. So like mm-hmm. I know that I I had my oldest when I was very very young, and I applied for aid because I was eighteen and a single parent, and I was denied because I had moved back in with my my parents and they made too much money. Yeah. So I was denied any sort of assistance at all because my parents, who are not responsible for my child, made too much money and I resided in their home. And then without the aid, you would have a hard time moving out and supporting your child. Yeah, which is pretty much what happened. Yeah, that's the whole whole issue there. So you're kind of like forced to. And yeah, it's it's this this awful catch-22 that we put single mothers in still today. I mean, at least you didn't have to... Go to go to court and have Kevin calling you a slut. Uh, no, I had him do that anyway. Oh, okay. Yeah, because like I didn't even put him on the birth certificate because he was like, "Well, I, I think I should probably do a DNA test." I'm like, "I'm not putting you on the birth certificate, but you go right ahead, get the <laughs> fuck out." Like, so, but it is what it is. I mean, I don't think too much honestly has changed with that. Like, there's still a lot of shame, and like even when I was. I mean, I'm 18 years old. I'd go out with a baby, and the looks that I would get, and, and just, like, the nasty comments. And it's so probably all the dead baby jokes you told while you were holding the baby. No, I only told those when I was pregnant, because the shock value is freaking amazing. <laughs> but, um, no, like, I was, I'm a good mom. I'm a horrible person, but I'm a good mom. <laughs> you're a great But it mom. doesn't this matter. This is true. This is when, true. When you're young, you get a lot of that, and... There's a, not a lot of help that you can get. Because even if you get child support, say, there's a lot of times that people aren't getting that money for the child support. And then they have to take the person to court. And then they're both losing a shit ton of money on the court fees. Or, I've seen this with, with people I know, the <coughs> person who owes the child support is sent to jail. Which, there's got to be another remedy. Because they go to jail, they lose their job. Guess what? They can't pay the damn child support anymore now. Like, well, they, they can't... It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. But also, part of the, the problem with child support is it really screws the men over, like, a lot. Because there Hallelujah. are... Hallelujah. There are times that it's taking over half your paycheck. Well, now the man cannot afford to have his own apartment anymore. Or he's working extra jobs. But then they're taking half of that money, too. And it, it's not a fair system by any means it's, at all. I think it's somewhere... The, the, the name of the book is called Men on Strike. And it's written by a woman. It's written by a woman. But she makes the argument in that book, there's something wrong with the system because 97% of the people who are in jail for non-payment of child support are men. That It, it should be damn near 50-50, but 97% are men. So there's something with the system. Well, you do have to compare that to, to custody amounts as well. And like why should the, why shouldn't no, there should be, be an 50/50. equal? Yeah, yeah. And why shouldn't there be an equal 50-50 right there? I think there? we're working our way towards that. Actually, I think we are making progress towards making it 50-50. It's still going to take a little while, but but I think I think from just anecdotal evidence from what I've seen, I think there are far more judges who are not doing the whole thing where you know every other weekend at your dad's or they're they're doing 50-50. But God, that's rough to you. Hear stories of kids who pack up and move from one house to the other every week. Yeah. I don't know how they do it. I, I, it was, anyhow, so, but yeah, we're not that off track because this is very much on topic. <laughs> so, and, and it, it is a fascinating topic. It's especially fascinating to see how much and also how little progress we've made since these times. Read, read the book Men on Strike. It, it is fascinating. The main thrust of the book is the reason why men are not getting jobs, the reason why men are not going to college, they're not getting into marriages, they're not having children, is because all of these things 
it's for men it's not worth having children to lose them it's not worth having a wife to lose their property possibly their freedom you know if things go south it's a it's a fascinating book it's a great read men on strike cannot suggest it enough women also kind of get a raw deal so well, yeah, but especially back then, they really got the, the shit end of the stick because the men could just either walk off or be like, God, oh, take me to court, I'll tell everyone you're a whore. Like, <laughs> yep, that's exactly what they could do. And we'll, we'll get into it in a few minutes. The, the, a, a particular trend that was happening in this area that was the reason the ideal maternity home was... Uh, actually, we'll get to it right now because Scott already did the, uh, the whole... Uh, list of prices. Yeah, list of prices. So I just want to... Well, I, I do want to add, because um, Scott had said it was $20 for a funeral. So that $20 was $5 for a shroud, and then $15 went to the Youngs, who would be present at the, the burial. That's how it was split up. Um, and they got a white pine coffin, which was actually just a butter box from the local grocer. Yeah, so like a box, the groceries essentially, butter was shipped in. So... It was kind of like the... Uh, they would go to the grocery store and be like, do you have any boxes? Great, I'm going to take a bunch of those. You know yeah, what's like when you're moving. When you're moving and you need to pack your books. You know what's really nice? I like the Jameson whiskey boxes because they're separated up in sections. We can fit eight babies in one of those boxes. Jesus. So, and yeah, those, those boxes, 50 cents a pop. Ten if so you pack them tight. They're making... $19.50 profit. Or one source I saw did say it was $20 for the, the, the coffin and burial, I'm using air quotes, and $5 for the shroud. So possibly $24.50 yeah. in sheer profit. So, And the shroud was probably something else she just picked up at the grocery store, too. Yeah, probably. Yeah, a scrap of fabric lying around. Now, Is this cellophane? Part of, there were, there were a couple reasons this was, this, the ideal maternity home was popular on both sides, both from the adoptive couple's perspectives and from the unwed mothers. Uh, the, as far as the adoptive parents, there was no religious discrimination for adoptions. In the U.S., you could not adopt a baby across religious lines by law that was enshrined in law that if you were say, oh, I don't know a Jewish couple, you could not adopt a Catholic baby, which is messed up. I would rather see this baby rot in an orphanage. Yeah, than, exactly. Then let it take communion. Yeah, so they would, the ideal maternity home or the IMH would advertise adoption services in both Canada and the U.S., knowing that there was a draw there. And the advertisement was, quote, lovely babies for adoption, excellent health background, and healthy bodies. Health is in that very small blurb twice. It was the quotation marks around the word health that should have scared everybody off. Right. And I mentioned Jewish families in particular because they had, with this law, a very hard time adopting. So the home adopted out to a lot of Jewish families, but... Karen Balcom notes that it's it's not very likely that that same proportion of Jewish women were going to the home to birth their babies. So these families were probably lied to about that fact. Oh, constantly. Which, which yeah, which in, in, in Judaism, like, because it's... it's, it's it goes to the mother's side. Yeah. So that, that really makes it kind of <laughs> an extra kick in the cross. Of course the baby's Jewish. Don't you see the yarmulke? 
No, but I actually, I read one article that they, they said that um, they would manufacture twins as well. So if somebody oh came in and wanted twins and they didn't have any, she would just find two that looked similar and be like, twins. Well, I mean, they were also using a weird form of slave labor. In in the uh, in the place as well. I would say more like indentured servitude sounds more like. Yeah, it. yeah. If if a mother come in and didn't have the money, well, nobody had the money back. Right. Yeah. So they would put them to work. Yeah, well, yeah they, they had, had, to work they it had off. these contracts that they would make them sign, and um, the unwed mothers would give William power of attorney and legal authority over the baby and the adoption. They would get charged an additional thirty dollars if they did not sign it within fourteen days of birth. And most of the time, by the time that they got to leave, their bills were over $300, which back then, as I said, d- like people working domestics, $4 a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, to put it in perspective, $4,400 Canadian today. So that's, that's, a, lot of that's money. a lot of money for mm-hmm. even for someone today to be able to scrounge up. I mean, that's, that's comparable to an American hospital bill. $4,400, that dumpster's looking really attractive but, but right now. But here's the thing. The average age of the single mother for this home was 17. Yeah. That was the average age. No 17-year-old has $4,400. Yeah, so they essentially got like, like free labor out of this as well. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the, the adoption thing because... You might think, oh, well, it was old-timey times, and they probably, like, everything was all loosey-goosey everywhere. People were just throwing babies at, you know, every couple who wanted them. But even back then, in the 1940s, Canada and the U.S. both had very stringent adoption processes. There was counseling of the birth mother, investigation of the mother and father's histories. That was medical, family history, and also, quote-unquote, moral history. Judgy. Uh, and similarly, right? <laughs> and a similarly thorough investigation of the adoptive parents, and a probation and evaluation period to start with. So a little bit kind of like fostering from the beginning. It could take six months to two years to be finalized. So these were the systems that were in place in the U.S. and Canada. Here's how it worked at the ideal maternity home. We got one of those in the back. Yeah, yeah, I, I can, I can go grab you one of those. Yeah. Adoptive parents would have to present letters of reference and such, but there is no evidence that these were even looked at. So that was all they had to do to qualify, which is to have, have your, your, your cousin <laughs> forge a letter from the, the local mayor. And boom, done. Then they would go pick out their kid from the nursery or pick out the pregnant mother whose baby they thought maybe they'd want and could be home within a few days of the birth if they were Canadian with their new child or a few weeks if they were American, in which case they'd need to get a visa for the baby. And there was just no follow-up whatsoever. So you're sending these kids to God only knows what homes. You really don't, there's, there's, there's no care. There's no even attempting to check on the homes. He asked for my papers. I just handed him a CVS receipt. Said I was good to go. <laughs> oh. So, and the thing is, is that despite the fact that they're circumventing all these laws and processes that are in place, politicians and businessmen showered them with praise for their work because they were saving unwed mothers and giving homes to their children, and they were also keeping the taxpayers from having to pay for the care of the mothers and the babies. Do you think anybody accidentally adopted a baby from these people once? Like, he's just a workman presenting them with a bill for, like, <laughs> for like mowing the lawn outside. Here's a 15, you owe me $15 for the money of the lawn and putting, cleaning the gutters out. 
And they just hand him a kid. It's like, oh, good eating. So, okay. Ew. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> yes. Looking for your next true crime podcast binge? Do you love all things crime, cult, and controversy? Check out the Crime Juicy Cocktail Hour. Every week, the girls research and pick apart juicy topics from alluring cult leaders to cold cases to human trafficking to cannibalism and more in our multidisciplinary think tank over drinks. Sometimes we even call in the experts. So grab your juice and tune into the Crime Juicy Cocktail Hour on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay juicy. Now, as far as the businessmen and politicians, they had their say. But the locals, they talked about the home in in less than glowing terms. Doctors talked about how uh, the home had a shockingly high mortality rate. And neighbors talked about how the corpses of babies were left out to rot unburied. I don't want to live next to that. Well, I read on Murderpedia that the youngs themselves were responsible for tripling the mortality rate of Halifax. Yes, yes. It was 3%. Nova Scotia had a 3.1% average, and between 1928 and 1935, Lila reported 148 births and 12 infant deaths at the home, which is an 8.1%. Yeah, so nearly tripling it. Yeah, thank you. That's just what was reported. Exactly, yeah. Now, a lot of this is based on rumors and speculation, but I think that we can probably say that there was a lot of unreported, just because they weren't really the reporting types. No, they were not. And whenever the idea of corpses of babies left out to rot was brought up, Lila said, oh, it was just the once. (laughs) Once is twice too many. Yes, exactly. It should be in the negative numbers. So the home's been going on for about five years or so. When uh, Dr. Frank Davis, he had become Nova Scotia's public health minister in 1933, he started paying some special attention to what he was hearing. He brought in the... And I really just, I liked the important names, honestly. The Deputy Minister of Public Welfare and the Director of Child Welfare for the province. And they would spend the next 12 years attempting to compile evidence against the home. At one point, they, they were like, okay, no more burial certificates to these people. Stop doing that until we can complete an investigation. But somehow that didn't seem to have any effect. Probably because they weren't even trying to get burial certificates. Hmm. And um, the Youngs were said to be, quote, quarrelsome, aggressive, and outspoken in their insistence that business owners had every right to run their business without government interference. Uh, I, I often wonder how many of these babies were actually, I'm not going to say murdered, but I'm going to say manslaughtered by Lila herself. Because more than one of her clients said that she was kind of ruthless with the children. Uh, she was supposedly, one client said... Physically immense, an overwhelming presence, and a great sense of power. And it was a thing. Lila would deliver the babies herself, and William, of course, knelt in prayer while they were being delivered. (laughs) And she would just kind of, like, hulk her way in, grab the baby by the head, and yank. That was the delivery process. And despite this really awful bedside manner and, you know, methodology and such, the Youngs were doing better than ever. They had 80 births in 1935. They were making $6,000 per year during the Depression. That is over $100,000 Canadian today. Well, their greatest profit actually came from the adoptive parents. 
uh, they would charge an average of 18, uh, 800 to 1,000 per infant in the 1930s, escalating to an average of about $5,000 a baby in World War II. Uh, 1940s, the maternity earned $60,000 a year from its live-in clients. Uh, yeah, it was... Lila and William banked $3.5 million from the adoption between 1937 and 1947. I would like to note that uh, Karen Balcom in her article said, it's unlikely that many parents adopting children from the home paid anything near $10,000, and child welfare leaders from Canada and the U.S. who investigated the IMH could not confirm payments higher than several hundred dollars. But even if you're just, you know, adopting out, like, 50 babies a year, several hundred dollars adds up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it doesn't even have to be 10000 And they were making enough from the home alone. Two. <laughs> as well, Christy. Home alone as well. <laughs> the home alone That's the well. one with Trump in it. <laughs> yeah, because the numbers that I had, um, so we're estimating that half the babies were lucrative to sell, Um so an average of five thousand dollars is what it ran on would total out three point five million. Over like, 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 I think that's that's in today's money. Okay, all right. They would be making like three point five million, like almost a year. I think is is what it was trying to say. It's really kind of confusing the wording on it. I think we're doing the wrong thing here, ladies. You two have a uterus. I have low scruples. Let's make this work. So. <laughs> They were. Uh, they I'm were just not gonna die instead. <laughs> they were not seeing a lot of attention uh, for all of their misdeeds. There was only one case in 1935 when they were charged with fraud for trying to charge expenses of a child's care when the child was, in fact, dead. And they were found guilty, but there wasn't really any uh, real repercussions from that that really mattered. They just kept on doing their thing. I'm shocked they didn't get charged for fraud for having their letterhead with both of them as doctor. I know. Nobody looked into this. There, there was no... They would get more regulations on the books, but, but as, as far as the, the unwed mother's home, again, you have to get people to care about single unwed mothers, and it's hard. So the, the, the way they eventually did this was they were like... Think of the children. <laughs> it has to be about the babies. But for, I guess, too many years, they were like, look at these unwed mothers. And everybody was like, eh, we don't really care about that. So, <laughs> so But as we saw with Amy Archer Gilligan, these cases can really only go on so long before one incident kind of upsets the apple cart. And in this case, that was the death of Eva Nyforth. Nyforth? I'm going to go with Nyforth. So she was 27, and at the start of her ninth month of pregnancy, the father was a... Do you guys know what the father was? His profession was? was I'm looking it up right now. I have it highlighted someplace. <laughs> now I'm going to spoil it. Yeah, go ahead. He was a drifter. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> yeah, so she... We need sailors. <laughs> and... Uh, so she went to the ideal maternity home uh, just before Christmas 1935, and adorably, she came via sleigh. Mm. I know, it's so <sighs> cute because it's going to get real sad. Just like, really grab onto that cute, very quaint, picturesque moment while you can, because we are going to spoil the crap out of it in uh, three, two, one, now. So she got an, an abdominal infection and was put on bed rest, which was just a cot. I mean, 
I think of bed rest and I think of like my bed, which, you know, I don't have a gigantic bedroom. I don't have a gigantic bed, but it's comfy. I, I got some Netflix, you know, I can, I can, I can chill out in there. No, this is a cot probably in a hallway or something or in a room with a whole bunch of other women that's badly ventilated and there's children screaming right next door in the other room. It's not, it's not really super, super comfy. It's, I mean, it's, you know, it's the early 1900s. We're talking, it's not really Netflix. It's like kinetoscope and chill. <laughs> <laughs> so she uh, then had her child January 28th. The child did not make it long after birth. Her infection got worse, but the youngs didn't have any antibiotics and didn't really seem very motivated to try to get some. So they were just like, hey, crush your fingers and pray, I guess. She didn't pray hard enough. No, that's the problem right there. <laughs> they did send a letter to her boyfriend, Walter. I have no less name. I don't know if it's the same man as the drifter or not. Um, and if so, how do you send a drifter a letter? I don't know. <laughs> like just general delivery maybe, to the post office? Maybe it's the way, you know, the White House. <laughs> yeah. Aimless drifter. Santa, North Pole. It might have been her dad, though, because I have, it, they sent a letter to the mother's family. Okay, all right. So yeah, it could maybe. have been like a dad. Yeah, this is definitely a case of, oh, it's been so long since I've done this in person. Everybody with me now? All right, on three. Sources very wildly. I've, I've been here, I've been away from here for so long, I forgot sloths were a mascot. <laughs> yeah, I brought out Slothy from the I, studio. I went, I what the that. fuck is that? Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, they. I guess they call, I'm going to go with yours. That sounds more likely that they would contact her family. And so, so they do. Uh, I, probably her father comes to the the IMH and finds Eva Nyforth in terrible condition. She's hovering near death, and he's like, we should call a doctor. And William is like, I'm a doctor. And Christy's like, no, you're not. <laughs> I have it in all caps. And <laughs> Christy's notes. like, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. You're lying now. You, you said another lie just then. So... They basically overrode his wishes and also got him to fork over money for the burial. That's actually where I got the $5 for a shroud and $20 for the burial. And then the, another thing is they increased prices as they went, as the years yeah. went on and, and according to conditions and as they got more popular. So that's another really big factor in differing numbers as well, too. Yeah, because mine was from the beginning of it. That's what they were charging. So they probably did tack on an additional $5 after the Great Depression. Because these, I'm sure you will be shocked to hear, listeners, were really fucking greedy people. Yeah, they were. <laughs> they were really greedy. And so they, uh, they basically shooed him away. In early February, Eva Nyforth died, and the authorities kind of started paying attention. They think that both the baby and Eva died due to poor sanitary conditions and negligence. So they do autopsies on both baby and mother. A pathologist reports that Nyforth, the mother probably got an infection called peritonitis, I hope my uh, sibling, who is in the medical field, approved of my pronunciation. I think that was pretty good, actually. <laughs> Thank you. Likely from having been subjected to medical treatment with unsterilized instruments. Uh, that's probably just Lila standing over here, going, like, hammering both fists down on her belly, going, Baby, come out! Thunk! <laughs> yeah, right? So, what peritonitis is, is it's inflammation of a membrane on the inner abdominal wall, 
Symptoms are abdominal pain or tenderness, bloating or a feeling of fullness in your abdomen, fever, nausea and vomiting, loss of appetite, probably because you're nauseous, diarrhea, low urine output, thirst, inability to pass stool or gas, fatigue, and confusion. So you're feeling all of this horrible stuff and then you're also tired and your brain is all confused and it's terrible. Now they, in the autopsy, they found that it probably went from the uterus to the perineum. Perineum. And, perineum, really? It sounds too much like perennial. It's your taint. <laughs> I know it is, but I don't, I just don't, I don't say it enough to know how to pronounce it. Taint. <laughs> taint, okay. <laughs> Poor dead woman, can't we just call it by the freaking medical term if I can pronounce it right? Which perineum. I no, okay, so I swear bridge. it's perineum. I, I've always heard it perineum because I've had stitches on mine from childbirth. Well, maybe maybe that might give you some experience that I can I can grant you. So and that's what they that's how they pronounce it to me. So <laughs> then I, I have been known to mispronounce some medical things. Uh, that would cause some abscesses, then the abscesses ruptured, and then likely went into sepsis. And I would like us all to please rewind to the moment when she rode up to the ideal maternity home in a sleigh a week before Christmas, and so we can rush over and say, no, don't go there. Well, and you know what? They actually, today in, in medical stuff, after you have a baby, you are not allowed to leave the hospital until you poop. Because one of the big signs of that is inability to poop. Okay, all right. So after you have a baby, you are not allowed to leave the hospital until you've made a poopy. Well, I mean, Which is the weirdest rule to have as an adult. Can't leave till you poo. After I had my gallbladder out, I couldn't leave till I peed. Yeah, kidney stones both times. Yeah, I mean, I and it was I was running the my hand under the warm water. I was thinking of Niagara Falls. I was doing everything. I had such a difficult time being. It was so frustrating. Especially when you have a, like a, like a big nurse or something over you. You're like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, Trust very, me. I just <laughs> don't want to go. It with my with my first kidney stone, I didn't want to. Because, I mean, I was ripped up inside and I passed cherry Kool-Aid that was made of hot lava. It was, yeah. it was not good. After my gallbladder, my, the, probably the number one most painful experience of my life was sitting up that first time. Mm -hmm. That first time sitting up was because they've, you know, done tearing up of things in your abdominal wall. And guess what you used to sit up? Your abdomen. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that sucked. Well, if it's any indication from what we said last week about not giving painkillers out anymore, I imagine, like, I, I do have, a, like, a bunch of gallstones, and eventually I'm going to have to have that taken out. And I imagine they're just going to, instead of giving me anesthetic for surgery, just have me breathe real fast into a paper bag. <laughs> Probably at the rate we're going. <laughs> Now, back on to uh, slightly more somber topics. The baby they did an autopsy of and showed that the scalp had been loosened due to improper use of forceps and the occipital bone was broken. That's the trapezoid-shaped bone at the like, bottom slash back of your head. That is... Okay, so there's two cases here. There's, there's unsterilized medical equipment and there's improper use of forceps. These people are not qualified. Have I hammered it home enough? <laughs> well, and actually, I believe that since she's a midwife, she shouldn't be using forceps anyway. That is what an obstetrician would use, and they're still frowned upon because you can really cause damage to both mother and child with forceps. As she did. I, I had a friend in college who had a big scar running down about half the length of his face, and it was caused from misplaced forceps whenever mm. he was he was being born. It dug in and cut him. Got yeah. him bad. In this case, it was very dangerous, and uh, it did not end well for the baby. The youngs 
were both charged with two counts of manslaughter. And of course, they claimed innocence. And that was when their terrible mort mortality rate at the home came out, probably <laughs> uh, uninflated. In uh, May 1936, they were acquitted. God damn you. I know, right? I mean, there's not enough really details of the trial to know what the heck happened or how it happened, but it's, it, it's probably a lot of, I'm thinking, influence and pull with all these businessmen and politicians. That's how they kept this thing going to begin with. That's how they got off. There, there was a nice thing that came out of it, though. Uh, the Royal Canadian, Canadian Mounted Police adopted a policy of investigating each and every reported death at the home for the years to come. Reported. Reported. That's the problem. There. Yeah. there it is. That's the problem. So, and then it was after this that uh, that that contract that Amber mentioned earlier, well, William added a little clause to that power of attorney contract that would absolve the home of culpability in case of an infant's death. So... That was, uh, yeah, now they're no longer responsible, or at least so they, they, they feel. I don't think that's actually how it works. But so the whole deal was, um, as we said, they would adopt babies out, but you're probably wondering why are so many babies dying? Well, yes, there's the improper medical care, of course, but those who didn't die and they couldn't adopt out would generally die from neglect. But they'd also keep taking the money for the baby's care, and the adoption, but doing neither. So there were probably a lot of cases where they told a mom, oh, we adopted your baby out. And she just never found out that her child actually died of neglect. Or was starved to death. Yeah, well, yeah that's how it came out. Um, a neighbor of the Youngs, Eleanor Marriott, uh, Lila offered her $3 a week to take care of one of the babies. But the baby was skin and bones, barely even alive. She took the baby to the doctor. And of course, it was malnourished and didn't even survive the week. So Eleanor Marriott actually starts looking into this a little bit. She does a little investigating and finds out from the, the cook or a cook at, at the IMH that this was likely one of the babies that was considered unfit. So it wouldn't be easily adopted out because the child was sick, had a deformity, had a birthmark, or, of course, was not white. So that was how that worked. These babies would be fed only molasses and water. First of all, A, you're not even supposed to give water to babies. <laughs> so you can you can kill them just by doing that. You don't even need to underfeed them. Just just give them a bunch of water. Don't give the listeners ideas, Christy. <laughs> Sorry. And then uh, once the babies passed, they would bury them in the meadow next to the Fox Point Adventist Cemetery. It's estimated, although again, like we, a lot of this is rumors. A lot of this is speculation. We don't have a lot of actual solid figures because... As far as official investigation was concerned, there wasn't a lot. So, but it's estimated that around a hundred babies were buried there in secret. Well, well <clears throat> no. Okay, so the handyman, Glenn Shatford, yes. admitted to burying between a hundred and a hundred and twenty-five babies himself. Yeah, he said Well, that's that's true. I didn't catch on to that point. He said himself, other handymen. Yeah. Uh, there's one case where William buried one that we'll we'll get to. Like, it, that could have happened more than, than Glenn Shatford knew, because he was the one who, who actually told that story. See, I didn't even think about that, that aspect. Yeah, see, Glenn said that he had been burying them in rows so that it was easier to figure out how many there were. Shatford also <laughs> talked about a time in April of 1938 
whenever an infant laid in the young's tool shed for five days, covered by a box, before they even went, yeah, go ahead and bury it. Well, no, what happened actually there was, okay, I want to say, well, no, because we have different versions, different stories, yes, sources yes. very wildly, but he found that baby and he just kind of covered it. Five days passed and William's like, hey, that, that baby that's out in the shed, we got to take that out to the meadow. And norm normally, like I said, Shatford would do the barrel, but this was the one that William did. And Shatford was like, that was weird. Why do you have me stay in the truck while he went and did the burial? Mm -hmm. Normally, he makes me do the god-awful horrific work. And, you know, like Shatford um, said that William had a, a rag covering his face. So, I mean, there, there could be some potential of communicable diseases there or... Maybe it, Don't you just pray those away, guys? Maybe it was their own baby? I mean, rampant, wild speculation, yeah. but it's strange that this was, this was a strange enough case that it stuck out in his mind. So, well, as, as far as other methods of, uh, of, of disposing of the, the, the bodies, there was supposedly some sort of incinerator at the home, so, uh, and locals wouldn't notice the smell as well. And uh, Eleanor Marriott, the neighbor who took in the, the baby, she, I wondered, I was like, why did she investigate this, find it out, and then keep quiet for so long? Well, uh, her husband was paid to take some of these babies out. He was a fisherman. He was paid to take some of these babies out and bury them at sea. Ooh. So that little income stream probably influenced her a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stream. I do want to say something about the, the molasses and water yeah. thing, though. So the molasses and water thing, to starve a baby to death on molasses and water would take up to two weeks for the babies to starve to, to death. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's horrifying all around. There's really, there's no good here. After the sleigh arrives, there, there was one cute moment, and we destroyed it real quick. So they were still making money just constantly. The four-room cottage they started with, they eventually um, moved to a 54-room behemoth of a facility that was in 1944, it was worth around $40,000, which is nearly $750,000 in today's Canadian dollars. That's not real money. 54 <laughs> rooms, 14 bathrooms, even fucking turrets. Turrets, yeah. Yeah, it looks like a really scary gothic castle. That's, well, you know, the turrets are so that you can open fire on all the undead babies that are coming back for revenge. Right. And it's really, it's interesting that there is a movie about that. Yeah. These, these stories, they, they started at this home in 1928. And uh, aside from Eva Nyforth, the, the weird stories don't really start until like 35, 36. So they were already in, in business. Then a couple weird stories start. And then you have in, in 1938, Glenn Shatford with that weird baby in the shed for five days. And then in 1939, a woman named Violet Hatt, who was never, ever able to wear a purple hat without getting funny looks. I think that's a pretty minor problem to have. <laughs> yeah, considering, yes. She was giving birth, and things went awry. Lila was attending the birth, freaked out, and said, Oh, the baby is choking on the umbilical cord. I don't know what to do. So she just got on her knees and prayed. Turned out the baby was breech. William came in, you know, the chiropractor, and delivered it. I'm sorry to any chiropractors we have listening. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that you do um, good things for your patients, but don't deliver babies. <laughs> like, just not don't less, deliver babies. Not unless it's part of the routine, you know. It's like, <laughs> well, yeah, you got the slight curvature of your spine. Uh, watch this. Grab, pull. <laughs> you were pregnant all along. <laughs> so, 
The thing with Violet Hat was the baby was a girl. And there had been rumors and whispers flying around the maternity home, because, you know, the women there all talk, that a rich couple up in Winnipeg wanted to adopt a baby girl. Winnipeg. Just, I hate the name of your town, Winnipeg. It sounds like a bad contest for pirates. There's a weaker than song that basically the chorus is, I hate Winnipeg. Yeah. (laughs) So, it's a good song. So, Violet's baby girl was the only one that was born in the home at that time, but Lila was like, oh, the baby's getting real sick, you know, and I'm going to bring it to see you, but it's going to be dark, and I'm not going to let you see actually the baby's face. You're going to see me holding the baby. And then, of course, the baby died. So, till the day she died, Violet was sure that her baby had actually lived and had been sold to the rich Winnipeg couple, but she could never prove it. But that's just, it's such a sad story that she had lived the rest of her life, you know, having to think that. It, it hurts. I just picture Violet come in and she's holding like, it's just obviously her arm in a blanket <laughs> with like a little face going, would you like to breastfeed? <laughs> so all these tales reached the public's ears by drips and drabs over the years. I'm sure it was, you know, the talk of the town, but always in whispers because we can't make these accusations out loud. Finally, 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 some satisfaction. The young saw some consequences. They, this fellowship from their church, which I'm sure was not like fun or great, but I want to see them in jail for a long time. So I'm not super satisfied here. I'm left feeling a little bit wanting. So the thing was, is like we said, there was no real law in place to regulate or inspect maternity homes. They, They were actually providing really a necessary service or several, actually. They were just, in many cases, doing it terribly. And so a lot of people kind of didn't want to upset that, that the way things worked because they were like, well, if we don't have the ideal maternity home, the biggest maternity home in eastern Canada, then where are all these unwed mothers going to go? Where are all these babies going to go? And so district leaders and such, they wouldn't want to do anything about it because then it's their money, you know, the taxpayers' money and all the money from their funds that has to go to taking care of these unwed mothers. So really, a lot of people didn't have a motivation to do it. And they didn't even have the the laws to make any sort of, uh, you know, real strides in prosecuting them at the moment. And again, powerful connections in the town and the province. The businessmen liked them. The politicians were on their side as we'll see sometimes in their business. Uh, So, and of course, you're like, well, surely somebody was like, why do they keep things so secret? Well, because it's a home for unwed mothers. (laughs) That's kind of the whole point. So, and also there's the added fact that adoption really, we think of it as just normal today. It's just somebody adopted a baby and it's it's not any different to, in, in, in my mind at least, it's not any different than somebody had a baby at the hospital. It, you know, like, different processes. You now have a child that you are responsible for. Same result. Yeah, it was like kind of almost a stigma back then. And so adoptive parents might try to pass the baby off as their own. I can remember, I can remember like it being a big deal in like sitcoms and stuff like that. What do you mean I'm adopted? Yeah. You know, it wasn't, today it doesn't seem like to be that big of a secret. It's, you know, Children aren't, it's known, they grow up knowing, hey, we're not, we're not your biological parents, but we are your real parents. You were adopted. We, we were very happy the day we brought you home from the agency. 
it's and God bless it. We are finally getting to the point where we're letting gay parents adopt. We're letting different uh, different ethnicities. It's not uncommon for a black family to adopt a white child. It's not uncommon for a black child uh, to adopt a white family. Yeah, I, <laughs> hey, My, I'm on new medicine. You knew where he was going with that. It's fine. My sister and her wife adopted two boys from, from Ethiopia, and, mm-hmm. and they're awesome. Uh, but they're also divorced now, and I'm so happy for that. Uh. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's kind of disgusting, too. If I may get on a little bit of a political rant. I think that you fuckers out there who do not approve of gay marriage and gay adoption, letting a child rot in an orphanage as opposed to letting a same-sex couple bring them in, sex is not part of it. It's, I don't want to think about my parents having sex. I'm sure that, no, it's not an orgy. It's, Jesus Christ, just let the kids be fucking adopted. So two things. It's still somehow part of the sex panic that happened in like the 1930s where they were like, oh, there's lots of sex crimes going on against kids. Must be gays. <laughs> oh, look, the gays are up to it again. They're all up to no good. So there's that. I am, of course, paraphrasing 1930s bigots. Um, I just want to make sure that nobody like isolates that and puts it on YouTube. And no, that's my new ringtone. <laughs> the gays are up to no good. And then second of all, When I was doing the research on this, I was actually trying to find information about the laws in the U.S. that prohibited adopting across religious lines. What I actually found was the new laws that are being put in place that adoption agencies can discriminate on religious grounds, which means gay couples. They can discriminate against gay couples. Great. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's, we're, sometimes we go backwards, sometimes we go forwards. I think it's, going backwards. <laughs> I think it's, it's either Oregon or Wisconsin that, like, if you go to a pharmacy and go, yeah, I'd like the plan B, which is not the abortion pill, it's contraception. Mm-hmm. You go, I'd like plan B. They go, no, I don't want to sell it to you on the grounds of my religion. They can actually deny selling you Plan B. Yeah. And uh, so to go back to the home, another thing that, that really is kind of like, it's a, there's the, the baked in secrecy of, you know, well, of course, it's all secrets. It's a home for unwed mothers. There's also the fact that anybody who reports either an unwed mother or a adoptive parents who also have a stigma there, if you report, it's like, well, gee, how'd you find that information? It's like if you're going to buy drugs... And then you're like, calling the police, and you're like, you know, uh, I know of a place where you can get drugs. Um, uh, a bird told me or something? That actually happened <laughs> twice last week on the Birds scanners. told you where to get drugs? No, people <laughs> called the police because their drug dealer ripped them off twice <laughs> last week. I love this town <sighs> so much. This is such a great town. Oh, so yeah. So there's, no, it's there's, not. There's really, as far as, like, secrecy was concerned... It, this place was able to be wrapped in layers upon layers of secrecy. It was insulated by all of these societal factors, which is really fascinating to me that they just kind of took advantage of it at the time. I like to sometimes do this little thought experiment where I take old-timey murderers and such, and I try to put them in new-timey times, and I kind of think, would they be able to pull something like this off? And a lot of the times, the legal and societal mechanisms that were in place that allowed them to get away with it back then 
are different now and they probably wouldn't be able to, but they'd probably find some other scam is the thing that people who are going to do this are going to find a way to do this, whether they're in the 20s, the 30s, in or the 1920s or the 2020s. You know, it doesn't matter. So, so yeah, my thought experiment is null, but was uh, it was a fun ride. You can't lie. <laughs> so... Uh, in 1940, Frank, Dr. Frank Davis, that, uh, the minister of health stuff, he sponsored a law that got passed that year in Nova Scotia. It was the Maternity Boarding House Act. Really, really inspired by the IMH. He really could, could raise his glass and toast them and say, thanks, you gave me everything I needed. <laughs> really appreciate it. It instituted more regulations like record keeping requirements, reviews, inspections, immediate death reporting, so within 24 hours, as well as making it illegal to advertise adoption services. Although naturally, the Youngs kept right on advertising. So there's licensing in place here, and the IMH was granted licensing in 1940, 41, 42. So even though this law is put in place, they're still able to get licensed to be a maternity boarding home. And business kept booming. Now, I say boom because there was actually a mini baby boom in this area in the 1940s, in the early 1940s. We think of the baby boom and we think of people came home from war, they fucked, and they had kids. <laughs> and it was after the war. But I could see this. People are being drafted for war. They fuck and they leave. Halifax. It's a port. Halifax is a port. Sailors, merchant seamen. Semen. Semen. <laughs> Lots of semen. Lots of semen. Cream pies everywhere, people. Yeah. So uh, the, the depression was winding down, the war was winding up, and there was a marked increase in unwed mothers because you had these men coming in, leaving trails of knocked up ladies with men who are now out to sea. Or <laughs> dead. Or dead. When they came in, they really came, came in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We call it the white tide. <laughs> <laughs> It was to the extent that the IMH actually added a second nursery in 1941. They also uh, jacked up their prices. <laughs> At that point, they were making $60,000 a year, which is over $900,000 a year in Canadian dollars today. And again, you know, there's still, that's b before the adoption, which they were adopting out 15 to 20 babies per month. And finally, so they're, they're dealing with this license and these reporting requirements. It's getting really annoying. In 1943, they find the loophole that they you know they've been looking for all along. And that's the fact that the Maternity Boarding House Act exempts incorporated institutions. Now, the point of this was because there were all these big religious maternity homes that already did a lot of the met a lot of the requirements of the law. They did reporting and everything just as a matter of course. So you didn't want to have to overburden them when they were already complying. Uh, but, you know, in, in, the, in the wording of the law, it kept these incorporated maternity homes from having to adhere to all the regulations. So they were like, let's become one of those. And that's when they became the Ideal Maternity Home and Sanatorium Incorporated. And they even roped in a senator, William Duff, as president of the newly incorporated hellhole. Duff said... Bill Duff. Here's some stuff that Bill Duff said. The Youngs have, quote, strong faith in God and determination for the betterment of humanity. 
and have nobly pioneered the work of child welfare by developing strong, healthy babies within delightful surroundings for both, both mother and child. You should see William dig a hole, too. It's impressive. That's it's delightful. It's it's the, your surroundings are delightful. Yes. That man swung a shovel the way I don't know. He just have you ever just wanted a man, Steve? <laughs> Bill, what are you talking about? I mean, I kind of wanted him. <laughs> In 1945, we actually do have a case where a woman comes to the home wanting to adopt, sees the horrific environment there, and then reports back to an adoption worker in New York how terrible it was. There were neglected, malnourished children. There were three babies to a crib and no personal care whatsoever of the children. Just just letting them scream and scream and scream in their cribs. Three to a crib, again. And so, yeah, she basically, like, noped right out of there. She was like, uh... Oh, my God. Could you imagine? <laughs> Could you imagine? And then, like, every time you drive by that building, you know what's going on in there. Yeah, oh god, yeah. that would be terrible. Well, she, it seemed like she that particular woman might have been from New York, but I'm sure there are a lot of local-ish people who also had been inside and knew what was going on. Yeah. And again, this is just a woman who's seeing from the adoptive, you know, prospective adoptive parents side of it. She's not even seeing the horrible care of the women. So she's only seeing half the horror show. Now, in August 1945, health officials do an inspection. Why did they wait this long? I don't know. I, I don't know. But they find that the hygiene and ventilation in the home are extremely problematic. There's an infestation of some kind of vermin, and the babies are starving. <laughs> so, 80 babies, many lying in their own vomit and urine, and the air was thick with flies. Mm. Total lack of medical supervision, barely any nursing care, and what there was was not professional nursing care overcrowded nurseries. And this is from the report on public welfare services in Nova Scotia. On at least one previous occasion, infant deaths at this institution have reached epidemic proportions. And it is the opinion of this survey that nothing except great good fortune has prevented similar tragedies from recurring on more frequent occasions. End quote. And the thing is, as we said, they probably did. It just wasn't reported. Mm -hmm. And even though they closed, despite all this, the Youngs are still advertising lovely babies for adoption. Well, they weren't closed quite yet. They, they... <laughs> wow, okay. They just, they, they were just, the, the, that, somebody came and slammed shut that loophole. And in, so they did try again okay. to apply for another mm -hmm. license. Um, but basically at that point, now that the, the, there had been an inspection their reputation preceded them. They were re rejected. and See, I will, what I have here, November 17th, 1945, findings from inspections, uh, get the ideal maternity home, ordered closed. I have it closed in June 1946 after the trial. Huh. Okay, so uh, you're both right, actually. Yay! The best kind of actually. <laughs> so uh, it was ordered to be shut down in 1945. Oh, they kept it going through appeals. That's right. Ah. Yeah, it was the appeals. Yeah, that's okay. right. Okay. Yes, yes, exactly. It was really, it was the next bullet point. Um, but I didn't have the date written down. Because of we don't, here's the thing. We're not, uh, please understand, listener, we're not going from the same set of notes. Amber has her notes. I have my notes. 
Christy has her notes. We all research separately. We don't consult with each other. And that was just Scott's way of not editing out what just happened. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes, that's exactly what it But happened. I still have to listen to the whole podcast again because Amber fucking coughed. <laughs> I listen to the whole thing anyhow. I just do it passively while playing those beats. I'm gonna, I'm gonna oh. tell, I'm gonna tell you something here. Here's the worst part of editing. Here's the worst, and I'm guilty of it too. I'll be like, oh, elaborate contracts were signed by unwed fathers, mothers, mothers, and then I have to find a way to get, to take the word fathers out and just choose one of the two mothers and kind of ease them together to make it sound natural. And a lot of times it ends up unwed mothers. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've done that. Yeah. I've done that. Yeah, I'm guilty of it, too. Whoa! Okay, that's why I put the lid on every time. Excellent. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Editing that up. Because of this rejection of the license and the 1945 inspection, the government ordered the house shut down, but the Youngs kept appealing and continued running the house while they did so, because they were like, well, it's not final yet. We can just keep appealing. But they're not coping very well with this at all, especially William. He started drinking a lot and sleeping around with younger women, which is exactly That's how... That's called creating your own business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Oh, God. So, some consequences hit home, but I just got to warn you, they're not super satisfying. There's no satisfaction to be found here. In 1946, the uh, as you know, everything was happening, the U.S. Immigration and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police accused them of illegally smuggling babies from Canada to the U.S., and they were fined $428. Didn't even bother doing um, a currency conversion on it, or, or, or in today's dollars. Cause either way, it's, it's a pissed-off amount of money, yeah, right? exactly. It's, it's a drop. That's a, there, there is a bucket, and I'm staring at a drop, and I don't know why there's not more water in this damn bucket. These people are worth $1 to $3 million. That $420 will really fucking teach them. Yeah. They also uh, got in trouble because the Maternity Board House Act specifies you cannot practice medicine without a license. I can't believe they needed a law God. that they put into place in 19... In 1940, they were like, oh, by the way, you can't practice medicine without a license in a home for unwed mothers. I just picture her, like, coming up to, like, the stand going, I don't practice. I'm very good. Yeah. I'm pretty very smart. Why are we giving her that accent? I don't... I just... <laughs> her picture's just... If you look at her picture, you think she speaks like that. You think Slavic. It, it, it's a thing. I look at her, and for some reason, I see her. All I can find is black and white photos, but I picture her tinged green by gamma radiation. <laughs> so, dear God. <laughs> I have yeah. an army. I have a lilac. <laughs> they were... <laughs> They were fined a whopping $150 for practicing medicine without a license for almost 20 years. They're going to be ruined. And uh, so the maternity boarding house violations that they were charged with, uh, they were convicted for seven of the nine charges, and they were charged $50 to $100 plus costs for those particulars. So... And somewhere between like $350 and, and $700. It's really not much. But the thing is, is that all this is reported in the papers. This is the sunshine is the best disinfectant. And finally the sun is shining on the ideal maternity home. And they're both like cowering inside like vampires. <laughs> That's weird because whenever I leave a dead baby sit out in the yard, sunshine usually makes it rot quicker. Anyhow. And so, after the trial, the ideal maternity home closed in June 1946. The thing is, 
there are still some babies there who needed placement at the time. So I don't know what kind of limbo they got stuck in, but uh, they convert the home into both a tourist hotel and what they called the Battle Creek of Nova Scotia Rest Haven Park, which was a nursing home. Oh, I got. Could you imagine being a tourist and constantly being awakened by the screams of dead baby ghosts? But what is that? I, I, it had to have been separate. It had to have been like, well, we'll try a hotel for a couple years and then that didn't work. Or a lot of the tourists were old and they were like, well, they keep on dying here anyhow and it can't be the arsenic. So let's just, you know, maybe make it a nursing. I have no idea. It's very strange to try both. Even in 54 rooms, it's still strange to try both. <laughs> and and the thing is that Lila also kept up some private practices in obstetrics and adoption. Yeah, she actually continues obstetrics that she is still, again, not qualified for, and uh, private adoptions. In May 1947, she's like, well, you know, I bet maybe I should just tell people they're all lying. In fact, I should sue people for lying about me, even though they're telling the truth. So she sues the Montreal Standard for $25,000, which, again, trials bring everything to light. And the thing is, is that the paper has to prove that everything they're saying is true. So they're like, okay, yeah, challenge accepted. So according to uh, Balcom, As the Standard's lawyer set out to prove the charges in the article, the proceedings turned into a parade of the Young's misdeeds and Lila's stormy defiance. The entire drama was played out in excruciating detail on the front pages of the Halifax newspapers. One particularly effective exchange for the defense concerned the accusation that the Young's buried dead infants in butter boxes obtained from the local grocer. Lila Young insisted that these wooden boxes were turned into respectable coffins lined with beautiful sateen, but the image of babies tossed aside in leftover packaging remained and became a symbol of the Young's questionable practices. Welcome to the Lila Young Funeral Home. Here we have a very popular number we call the Cardboard Warrior. Over here for slightly more is the Plastic Tupper Tomb. Uh, Be sure to burp the baby whenever you bury it in that so it stays fresh. And then if you really want to go heavy duty, here's the Lazy Boy Eternal Lounger. (laughs) Actually... It would have been highly ironic, but kind of appropriate if they'd have just turned the home into a uh, funeral home. Yeah, yeah, would have. So uh, the Youngs head back to Quebec. Uh, William dies of cancer. And Yay! The maternity home burns down in 1960. Was that your 1962 That thing? was my 1962 thing. God's cleansing fire. Well, hold up. I'm going to back it up now. God oh damn it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so after the Youngs moved to Quebec, somebody else did buy the building. They went in and found a bunch of papers, files, records. What do I do with all this stuff? We burn it. He burned it all. Yeah. I mean, the house burned down anyhow, so like there was nothing, you know, burned down 80, 60 years ago. I can do math. Um, <laughs> so like, but still like that's, that's, that. That shit infuriates me like nothing else. What is all this stuff? Uh, trash it. Like <laughs> reading a biography of Queen Victoria and discovering that after her death, her daughter was like, you know, a lot of these journals that she kept in diaries she kept all of her life. I'm a little embarrassed by this. I think we should burn a lot of them. Gee, it's we just need some, so infuriating. We need some more videotapes. Let's take these old Doctor Who episodes and tape over them. Yes. How about with NASA? Ah, shit, nobody's going to want to watch the first moon landing anymore that's on tape. 
Tape over it. We need it. <laughs> we need it. It's the Super Bowl. We Somebody <laughs> wanted to see their soap operas. Yes. That actually happened. If you don't believe me, look it up. They taped over the goddamn moon landing. Oh, my God. Because they needed... And they did it on purpose. It wasn't like somebody went, ah, oh, fuck it, man. I want to see the Super Bowl. No, no, they did it on purpose. They uh, they decided that it wasn't necessary to have videotape of the moon landing and erased it. That really, really would have been nice to throw in the faces of a lot of conspiracy theorists. But instead, they're currently probably using that as evidence. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, the... Uh, Lila, uh, she goes back to Nova Scotia in 1965 and dies of leukemia in 1967. She was 68 years old. Yeah, A lot longer than many of the babies that she helped along to their deaths. And uh, it, was, it was a long while, but eventually an author was writing a book about this whole thing. And she interviewed Glenn Schaffer, that handyman. And that's when he came out with this. So it's not like this whole idea of 100 to 125 babies buried in rows was was out while all this was was you know going on that was a revelation that came along much later um now the thing is about these these kids some did survive the imh to be uh, adopted out and now they actually work together to find their birth families i think judging by her sources amber's probably gonna have more on this but i wanted to talk real quick about this one man keith bardsley he grew up in halifax and again, it was secrecy. It was <laughs> kept quiet. He didn't find out he was adopted until age 33. And actually, that was by accident. He finally found his birth father when he was 70. Miraculously, his birth father, 102 years old, was still alive. Damn. And so they got to meet. His father had no idea all this time that he had a son. He had, in fact... Uh, been married <laughs> when that happened. Uh, the mother was deceased, and Bardsley said, uh, the family talks about my mother as being very strict and very religious. They were very shocked that she had a baby out of wedlock. And the link to that article is in the show notes, as with all of our sources, but that article in particular is pretty fascinating. It's, it's always interesting to me seeing these interactions between uh, adopted children and when they finally find their, their birth parents. That's why I was so interested in the book uh, The Foundling by Paul Franzak, because it's, it's kind of similar to that vein. It's just a, such a fascinating thing to me, the reactions of people, because they vary so wildly. Some people are like, oh my gosh, yes, of course you're my son. And some people are like, I don't buy it. <laughs> you know, so it's very, it's a very fascinating dynamic, and it's just automatically fraught with drama. And so, yeah, I would really recommend everybody go read that article, because it's, it's very interesting, so, and, and well-written. So, uh, that's the one that's in the Charlotte Observer. And that is all my stuff, but I'm, I think I think you guys maybe have more. I have I have one thing here. I, I think this is... You're right. There, not a lot of justice happened in this case. And I think the final slap, into the fa slap in the face to these, these babies that didn't really have a chance at life is that uh, Lila and William are buried really, really close to all of them. Oh, that's yeah. right. I yeah. Because they would be, were they buried in the Seventh-day Adventist Cemetery, which in is Fox, right next to? In Fox Point. Oh, man. And their tombstone bears the words, Till We Meet Again. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we go up there and we scroll in hell underneath that. Yeah. Is well, next step, I think. Oh, the boiling pits of sewage are really fervent today. 
Um, so I do have a little bit of an update on the story you told about Violet. Oh. Um, she was searching for her daughter, Faith Lou Tanya Eisenhower. Um, although they, they did an exhumation of where the supposed grave was, there was not enough DNA evidence to do the test. Violet did pass away in 2002 without ever knowing for certain the whereabouts of her daughter. That's amazing Ooh. that they did an exhumation. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. So they actually did that in December of 1997. The Justice Department gave approval and the grave was exhumed. Oh. Um, so she did pass away without ever knowing. But I actually have a little short story to end on a happy note. So um, anybody that actually would like to, to read up on any of this, I thoroughly recommend the the website Ideal Maternity Home Survivors. They actually have reunions mm-hmm. where the kids have gotten together. They've met half brothers or full brothers or full siblings or whatever it might be. They search for their their parents or whatever. But there's um, a page of in memorandum. There's a page of people who are searching. There's a page of like, hey, this is who I am. Would you happen to know anybody? Um, and it, it's really just a kind of cool tool for a lot of these babies that didn't even sometimes know. But I'm going to tell you guys real quick about Lucy Ann Turner, now known as Donna Levy. She was born at the Ideal Maternity Home August 8th of 1935, and she was actually successfully reunited with her birth mother on her 58th birthday. Oh, my God. This is the feel good, though. This gives me goosebumps. So her mother met her with 58 gifts, all individually wrapped for each one of her birthdays to mark the occasion. Oh, my God. I got goosebumps, too. I'm going to cry. I know. I'm going to cry. God, no. So um, Lucianne had been adopted at 14 months and uh, was eventually found by her mother's other daughter. Um, the mother had died of... of she, was, she was told... Sorry, excuse me. Lucy was told that her mother had died of TB, so she had never looked for her, thinking she was dead all those years. But um, her mom never stopped looking for her. How sweet is that? She had a birthday gift for every year of her life. So that's... That's your feel good to end all this bad on. Do you know that... I believe that happens more often than not. Like, uh, for older... Older adoptions, you're told, like, the parent has died... I, I had a situation in my family. My my oldest sister was kidnapped by her mother. And in the 1970s, 75, my mom gets a call on the phone. And she goes, uh, is Paul Mort there? My mom goes, no, he's at work right now. And she goes, uh, <clears throat> I was told that my father had died. And uh, I just found out my grandmother's alive, and I was told she was dead, too. And I think that your husband may be my father. And my mom goes, Penny, we know all about you. Please come over. And that's how we got back in contact. She was, Penny was told that her father had died during World War II. Mm. So that is actually the main story that, that people were told. Um, so I have another story about Sharon Knight. Um, and... They were all told, because she actually was adopted, and her neighbors had also adopted somebody from IMH, and they were all told that the birth mother had died in childbirth, and the father was at war. 
or had died in the war. But they, speaking with the neighbors who had also adopted, they were all told the same story. And so that was just the thing. They would, they would come up with all these excuses of how the parents had died, and so that way nobody would ever go looking. And well, they also told the parents that the babies had died. Yeah. So if, you, if you're telling both sides that the baby died or the parents died, nobody's going to start looking for each other. And I think that's part of the reason that they got away with it for so long, because everybody was dead. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't have any, like, reason to question it and, and, until, you know, somebody gave them a reason or until, like, more news came out. So, There's yeah. nobody to look for. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely amazing. Well, those are, those are some astonishing stories. And, and listeners, you also just heard some astonishing yowls coming from my cat, Hemingway, who I think is a little thrown off by us having people in the house. <laughs> and he's, uh, he's letting it be known. He's actually normally a pretty quiet cat unless you happen to have his favorite wet food out and then... Then he's loud. Then he's and then he talks he a lot. Missed his buddy Scott. He, no, he's he is so mad that there are people in this house. He's kind of mad that there's people in this house. He'll get used to you guys again, and then he'll miss his. He'll he'll be like, oh my buddy Scott, because he used to run to the door every time he heard you. Yeah, coming. yeah. And but he's just he's just out of practice. As are we all. Yeah, <laughs> I don't like this. So uh, <laughs> and also hopefully the sound is good. I did like seven sound checks. I'm not even exaggerating because I actually numbered them. And I was, we're, we're sitting, you know, at the, at the end of a dining room table. I moved around to the different spots to see how it was sounding from each side each time. So I did this. It was very much, I'm glad that nobody was recording that. It, so, because it, it looked very silly. But, uh, so yeah, I hope it sounds good. If not, uh, we're going to work on it. But we're just kind of like experimenting and getting back because we don't really want to Record in the studio because a it's super hot in there and uh, b it's a little of a super tight close environment. There's a little bit more air circulation here and it's just a little bit more comfortable. Also, yeah, We're not all squeezed together. I'm so, not sitting in a pile of my own gravy. Yes. So hopefully, hopefully the sound <laughs> works out. I think it should, but if it doesn't, just rest assured that we're going to keep working on it. So no, I am not. Okay, the rest assured that I'm going to keep working. There on you it. go. Literally, I. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Wrong. Conjunctivitis appendicitis pronoun. I gave you the microphone. My job is done. <laughs> so I put on pants. Yeah, seriously. I, I, I went overtime on this bitch. So, all right. Oh, what are we doing this week, guys? Trying not to die. That was my big thing. Uh, I was not feeling well during last week's podcast, and I went and checked my blood pressure, and it was 220 over 114. Mm-mm. Uh, so, uh, the next day I got online, thank you to Push Health, they're not sponsors, but I figure you did a good thing for me. I went on to Push Health, and I just told them, hey, I'm having trouble controlling my blood pressure, I was on Losartan a few years ago, and they went, uh, about 10 minutes later I get an email, here's your prescription, Losartan, 100 milligrams, go over to March, uh, Go over to the Market Street Rite Aid and get it. Wow. And within an hour, I had my medication. No waiting in line at the hospital. It was a done and done deal. That's huh. awesome. Yeah. 65 bucks uh, for the appointment, $30 for the meds. Excellent. Yeah. Amber, how about you? I might take my daughter's Adderall and see what happens. <laughs> Everybody's getting medicated. We're, we're going to find out if Amber has ADD because... I'm willing to bet she does, and she's going to hope for a big old buzz, and instead she's just going to calm the fuck down. No, no. I'm going to do so many things. (laughs) (laughs) I have so much homework and so much house cleaning that need done, and I really feel like I could, uh, if I could focus, I could perhaps take over the world. Mm -hmm. 
I'm not going to doubt that one little bit. You frighten me right now. Yeah, she, she's got very much ambition in her eyes, and I'm, I'm scared. Ambition tinged with pharmacology equals success. <laughs> yes, yes. So I might do that. Uh, well, yeah, listeners, uh, just you know, keep an eye on the news, and if we have a new uh, world world leader, <laughs> world empress Amber, then you know where that started. Oh, I have a whole rant about that, but we're not doing that. <laughs> if you say so. I am, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, honestly. I don't know anymore. Um, fucking around the sound system, that's yeah, the answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Rearranging your house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, doing all that. Uh, doing physical therapy for my back and stuff. Uh, I have some new medicine that I really like. But yeah, uh, I'm just going to be working on that and uh, probably getting some writing done. Oh, I started work on uh, the secret project that we mentioned once every quarter and we'll be done with in ten quarters, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's been really, really interesting. And I'm excited to do some more, some more work on that. So yeah, secret project. And that's pretty much it. So, oh, yeah, I, it's, I'm out of, like, it's weird because we're out... You know, social media, Facebook, Twitter, we're old-timey, crimey. Uh, there are links for merch and our Amazon wish list in our show notes if you want to go buy us a book, and then we will have to read the book and then talk about the book and the murder and everything. You can be our gods and, and rule our lives in that manner. Christy won't let me put Transformers or Godzilla figures on there. That kind of pisses me off a little bit. That's because it's murder, not Transformers or Godzilla. I'll kill you. I <laughs> will make it. Still murder. <laughs> so, and um, if I have any other bullshit, I honestly can't remember. Whatever. It's been really weird and amazing and also weird recording in person again. So I'm going to get going because I think we all have to get in line for the bathroom. So uh, thank you, for, as always, for listening to our filthy words. And we will see you and each other in person again next week. What? Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> My sources this week are the Canadian Children Rights Council, the book Cold North Killers, Canadian Serial Murder by Lee Malor, FamilySearch.org, In 2013 Dollars for All My Currency Conversions, Mayo Clinic, Mayo Clinic, does anybody know? Mayo. Mayo, Mayo thank you. I always feel like that can't be right. Uh, Karen Balcom on the Journal of the History of the Atlantic Region and Elizabeth Leland on the Charlotte Observer. My sources are Murderpedia.org, Wikipedia.org, GVNews.com, FilmDaily.com, and TheThreeLittleSisters.com. My sources this week are Murderpedia.org, GVNews.com by Kitty Bottlemiller, and www.IdealMaternityHomeSurvivors.com. Survivors.com.